politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, friends, Romans, and fellow peaceful, loving, law-abiding taxpayers to the Conservative Review podcast, the one and only independent one-stop shop of news and views on the issues that matter to our country. It is a new week here, Monday, October 28th. Uh, My gosh, we're already just two months away from the end of the year. This has gone by fast. Uh, I've already got my winter cold here, so um, I apologize ahead of time if I'm going to be coughing or scratchy throat and drinking my tea here. But uh, I did want to say that I think we should all be thankful that at least as of now, it's been about 36 hours since one of the worst vicious terrorists were was, uh, you know, killed like a dog, as President Trump said. And not a single district judge has placed an injunction on his death. So I think for that, we should be thankful um, that at least there's one thing the courts haven't gotten involved in yet. And, and you look, you know, I laugh and you might laugh at this. But we're rapidly reaching a point where courts will start, um, you know, finding out about military operations and placing injunctions on them. And the executive branch will say, well, there's nothing I can do. The court said anyway, I digress. Look, obviously, we should all be really ecstatic and happy Uh, today. We're going to discuss at least, you know, until if we have time to get to other things. The morality and the strategic value to what happened over the weekend with the uh, demise of al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS, the founder of ISIS. Um, But I want to start, obviously, with the morality end of it. And what's troubling is that we live in a time where we cannot even all unite and just celebrate this amazing momentous event obviously bin laden was killed when obama was the commander-in-chief of the military he was president you could go back into my archives none of us dumped on him except for something that happened later on which we're going to talk about that is very relevant today about exposing operational details and endangering some of the special operators but in terms of the death, we were happy. We didn't want to you know, take away anything from it just because Obama might get a bump in his polling numbers because you know, there's got to be a point where morality supersedes politics. And you know, there was once a time where everyone knew who was a criminal, who was a victim, who was a terrorist, who was a murderer, um, what's good, what's evil, what's a man, what's a woman. And now there are blurred lines, at least among the confused elites, with regard to all of those fixed and immutable concepts or principles or realities. And hence, this is where, you know, there's a lot of discussion over the Washington Post headlines with austere scholar writing an obituary on Baghdadi, calling him an austere scholar. something that you would never find in an obituary about Hitler or something like that. And, you know, all these um, commentators on the left and even some pseudo people on the right criticizing the president for the way he described Baghdadi's death and the way he talked about it. There's a lot more behind it. I know we did a show two weeks ago when we talked about refugees, illegal immigration, crime, Um, social transformation without representation, that all of this stems from the same point, where we now have a moral divide so deep in this country. Um, And when I say so deep, I I still think the majority don't subscribe to this, but the elites themselves, and they've certainly convinced a certain group of people that everything is so relative that there's no morality anymore. There's no good and evil. There's no right and wrong. And they have to nuance everything. So whereas this should be a moment of Proverbs 11.10, of when the wicked perish, there is song of joy. That's at least my translation of that verse. Um, 
you know, there's there's some reluctance there. Well, you know, everyone's a human. You didn't have to say he died like a dog. Um, it, it really reveals a major systemic fault line in our society that is not really right or left, but it's elites and everyone else. And in my view, it's responsible for all of the other policies we have, whether it's this growing problem of morality on being pro-criminal, focusing the entire discussion of criminal justice on what we can do for repeat offender criminals not to lock them up, not what we can do to protect innocent victims. It's all about what we can do for illegal invaders, not the American taxpayer for whom the government has sworn an oath to protect. So, you know, while I do think it's a very, very tiny minority that has any reticence about celebrating Baghdadi's death, namely people like Rashid Tablid and uh, Omar. Notice, uh, notice they haven't said anything on this because they're probably quietly mourning his death. I think, you know, obviously, even, even among the typical left, most people aren't like that. But believe me, th this fault line is there and it's very present. Um, before we just get to the strategic value and, and why I think Trump did a masterful job yesterday, not just framing Baghdadi's death, um, for once, not making it about himself, which was great, but also the way he framed our broader vision for Syria and our involvement, which really very much touched some of the principles we've been advocating for to eschew this false dichotomy between, oh, we're pulling completely away versus endless ground presence. And I think he did a great job of that. But I want to just continue along the lines of this understanding morality justice good and evil right and wrong um for me personally it, it was um it was tough to celebrate it, it was very eerie because at the very moment the news came out that Baghdadi was killed i got just just personal news someone in my neighborhood community um that became a friend of mine even though he was a generation older lost a 10-year battle of cancer and, you know, I got to just thinking, juxtaposing, because, you know, they kind of died around the same time. Here you could have um, this guy was he was literally an austere scholar. He was a Jewish scholar. Um, he dedicated his life. He was a radiologist and was a very busy doctor, but he dedicated his life to scholarship and charity. Um, just an amazing, amazing person. And, you know, I learned so much from him. So he. I don't know anyone who went through this. He had a, a form of prostate cancer that was just terminal, and he was given 18 months to live. He wound up living 10 years, one experimental medication after another, and each one would debilitate another part of the body, create another living hell for him, and he just powered through it, powered through it. He, even when, when they gave up in hospice, he, he um, hung around for four and a half months. And this man just his belief in God was unbelievable. Um, I learned so much from him. He, he accepted the decree of God on him with such love and he never complained about it. And he was like, you know, I became closer to God through this. I, I would visit him. So he was um, completely, he was basically bedridden for three years, um, the final three years and certainly the last year or two. And he had, the cancer spread to 80% of his bone, stru bone structure. And I, I never appreciated that. It's like the pain of breaking a bone from the inside. It was constantly on nar narcotics, obviously. And this guy just um, every day he'd say, man, you know, I'm happy. I'm able to wake up another day. I have a lovely wife. I have a family. They're here for me. I've accomplished so much in life and I have a great family that's going to keep on my legacy it, it was just life altering, just being with this guy, you know, he, every once in a while, he, you know, he often he didn't want guests, but sometimes he did. And I'd go up to his room and um, it was just terribly sad, just losing that 10 year battle. But anyway, I was thinking, you know, this is why you and I and this audience, we believe so passionately in black and white. There is gray in the world, but there's a lot that's black and white. There's a lot of good and evil. There's a lot of right and wrong. And this is why we believe, you know, you have two people who could die at one time and one soars to the highest levels. Another one goes down to the to the depths. Um, 
This is why we believe that there has to be an eternal God with eternal reward and punishment, because it makes no sense how someone this good could suffer 10 years of this. It's just unimaginable, 10 years of of what it was, how he lingered with um, not just the cancer, but the debilitating effects of all the stuff that was fighting the cancer um, with his hearing and eyesight and balance. He had zero balance the last couple of years, couldn't stand up because of the what the medication did to to the you know neurology of his body and like how could a guy i mean this guy was a much better person than i am and and you know he suffered through that but we believe there has to be some sort of eternal reward that we can't even conceptualize likewise you have a guy like Baghdadi, you know you could kill a person but that doesn't do justice i mean let's say they kill a thousand people Let's say they kill tens of thousands of people in the most horrific, brutal ways like this guy did. And he he didn't just, you know, lead other people. He personally did it. He personally raped so many women. Um, you could only die once. So I mean, this is why we believe there's got to be an, an eternal force of good that has it worked out that this guy will will get paid back for that. Um it just it was just a sensitivity to me just dealing with that on a personal level at the same time and just seeing you know how you could have two people the greatest of people and the, and the worst of people and this leads me to the morality of what trump did you know as you well know i am no rear end for a, any politician i am no trumper i am no cruiser i am no anyone we are an independent conservative show we call the balls and strikes we're consistent about our values where trump is helpful to our message we'll praise him where he's off message we'll call him out and often he does get off message but i think what what was revealed in that press conference when the guy was speaking extemporaneously is a a very keen understanding of the region now unfortunately his personnel and policies don't always flow from there but at least at that moment, you clearly saw he understood the situation and also had a clear morality. And again, this guy has certainly very significant personal flaws, um, you know, that I'm not going to say is just amazing. But he 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 does have a sense of wrong and right, at least when it comes to murderers and terrorists. And it's something that even if you're a Democrat, you can't take away from the guy. He did a terrific job. Um, I want to start off by playing clip number one here of Jake Tapper of CNN asking questions of Mac Thornberry, the ranking Republican in the Armed Services Committee. Take a listen here to what this guy was concerned about. What do you make of the president's? Um, he painted a very vivid picture of al Baghdadi dying a very cowardly death which I don't doubt for one second. Uh, a lot of these terrorists are cowards. Um, but it was, it was very vivid. He talked about him uh, crying and whining, uh, detonating a suicide vest, killing his own three children while he did so. Uh, again, I don't, I don't doubt that that's, that's how he died uh, or that he killed his own children. These people are monsters. Yeah. But I wonder if there's any part of you that's at all concerned, because now there is, of course, a question about what is ISIS going to do in response to this move? in response to perhaps the president's, president's rhetoric. Uh, does that concern you at all uh, in terms of galvanizing or motivating ISIS terrorists? Notice the look on his face, the, the, the stone, stoic look. Like, you know, I, I understand, like, I'm sure this happened, and I get it, he was a monster, but are you concerned about Trump's rhetoric? He never really explained exactly what his concern was. He kind of seemed to intimate that the way Trump gloated about it might trigger the enemy, so it was more of a strategic concern. But I think some of you might have sensed a moral objection that he had in there, calling him crying and whimpering and dying like that. Oh, he shouldn't describe it like that. That's bad enough. Now listen to clip number two, Mac Thornberry's response. Oh, it, it probably makes me a little uncomfortable to hear a president talking that way. But uh, again, Baghdadi... It was the inspirational leader 
for an ISIS network across the world, from Africa to Southeast Asia. If you can take a little of the glamour off him, if you can make him less inspirational, then there's a value to that for uh, all of these folks who are on their computers or in these networks looking to attack. Now, obviously, well, the way he finished his statement with the qualifier, but there was use to this. He was right on money, and that's what I wanted to talk about today, the strategic value of what the president did to take the glamour off of ISIS. But I do want to say that there's no reason Mac Thornberry should have said, yeah, this makes me feel uncomfortable, but what's the, what's the qualification? What's the equivocation? He should have said, no, the president was right on the money. I feel uncomfortable when a president talks about the worst mass murderer of this generation dying like a dog. Now, I thought he might feel uncomfortable in the sense that it's kind of putting down dogs, but I don't think that's what he meant. <laughs> you know, I, I doubt that's what he meant, and I doubt that's what any of these other people you're seeing on the left express some reservation are referring to. You know, it's not that, that it's mean to the dogs. It's that there is a certain mercy that these people have on bad guys. It's the same, and you might say, come on, Daniel. No, no one, no one has mercy. There's a little bit there, and I'll tell you why. Because these are the same people who believe that the worst human beings alive in our country should be let out of jail. These are the same people who on a regular basis oppose the death penalty for the worst murderers, but at the same time support the worst forms of crushing up baby skulls and sucking out the memories, the, the dil um, dilation, whatever it's called, method, um, evacuation and, and um, dilation method until the third term, or frankly, when the baby's born. So yes, there is a morality problem in this country. There is a morality problem when we have these endless, endless pe people that butcher people, punch them nearly to death, and rape people, and they're let out on $10,000 bond because the judge felt bad that the guy has a family. There is a moral divide. It's there on immigration. It's there on crime. It's there on abortion. It's there on the death penalty. And it's there on terrorism as well. All to different, differing degrees. But obviously, the second thing Thornberry said is, is on the money, and I want to elaborate on that. But remember, this guy is the ranking Republican on the House Armed Services Committee. He sucks. He really does in, a, in every sense. This guy represents the Texas panhandle. It's one of the most conservative areas in the country, and he's just, he's a total loser. Um, but anyway, but, but the broader point is true. If you understand the strategic value of what he did, or, the, or, or if you, let me rephrase that, if you understand in what way ISIS affects us and what way it doesn't, you'll understand why Trump was really brilliant yesterday in what he did. Now, one of, one of my colleagues here who also has a show on The Blaze asked me, he said, look, I'm having trouble with this. People are messaging me. Well, you always talked about pulling out of Syria and you don't like these endless dumpster fires. Well, why, why are you suddenly happy, happy now that Trump got involved and sent troops in to kill Baghdadi? Well, shouldn't we not get involved? So now, to answer this question, and in what way ISIS affects us, what way it doesn't, and I think Trump, like I said, actually articulated our, our middle ground here. You first have to understand our middle ground. We have long said this. I mean, those of you who remember the show before we went to video will remember we've done endless shows over the years on this. Belying the false dichotomy between isolationism and interventionism. They're vacuous terms. Intervene in what? I mean, it depends on what. For what, in what way, what strategies, what type of deployment? We have laid out a path here of identifying what affects us, what are the best tools to do it effectively, and what doesn't affect us, and what aren't the proper tools to deal with it. So 
to those of you who know that, it's it's a stupid question. Oh, well, if you support pulling out of Syria, how could you support going after Baghdadi? But before I get to that, let me just go back to a thesis I've been pushing for about four years here. In what way does ISIS affect us and what way it doesn't? So I have long said that ISIS didn't pose a strategic threat to us in terms of the land they held. That was Russia's problem. That was Iran's problem. And we actually bailed them out and we empowered Iran. And they knew we would bail them out. Had we made it clear we wouldn't, it would have, they would have had to fight them. And, and, and you would have had a bloody war with them. And a bunch of bad guys would have gotten killed on both sides, which, frankly, I root for casualties on both sides. But instead, we were constantly told, oh, you must kill ISIS. ISIS is our problem. Uh, and then Assad would gas them, and they were like, no, now you have to go after Assad. Well, I mean, remember, this guy was caught in Idlib pro province. That is a hotbed for the Sunni insurgency. Remember, that is where um, Assad is accused of gassing people. And we were like, we need to go to war over that. Well, I mean, look, I don't like to see him use it, and inevitably there will be innocent people killed. But, like, dude, it's the Sunni insurgency there. So our point is, don't inevitably have, or indefinitely, I'm sorry, indefinitely have troops on the ground forever refereeing Islamic civil wars with no understanding of what our strategic outcomes are and needlessly risking lives. What I have proposed for quite a while is a strategy of strike and maneuver versus hold and build. In other words, we're not saying to pull out. And we've done several shows with Colonel Dan Steiner, um, one of the best retired Air Force commanders out there, on the value of keeping our naval and Air Force assets in the area. Whenever I talk about pulling out of Afghanistan, I, I say, well, we will keep our Bagram Air Base. And what that does is it's a recognition. It's not just air versus ground. It's a recognition of a strategy that we're not here to hold ground. There is no ground to hold. It's a bunch of tribal Civil War dumpster fires. But what we're going to do is draw a perimeter around a safe zone. Say, these are our interests. It might be shipping lanes in the Gulf of Aden, shipping lanes in the Straits of Hormuz. It might be a specific ally. It might be that at any given time, there's one specific enemy that we don't want to get too strong in a certain area. But what we don't do is dive head first into the five-way war, help one side of the war while harming the other and then helping the other and going around and then getting bitten in the back by three other sharks and snakes and having our soldiers die for Islam. Right? That, that, that's a big difference. So if there's a particular terrorist, like that guy's a problem, zap him in and out. Might be airstrike, it might be special ops, in it, but but strike and maneuver. That's very different than being responsible for the water and the electricity in Kabul or Raqqa, Syria, while those very people are killing you. That's very different from indefinitely having ground troops walk very precariously in a market in an urban area that's civilian, so you can't like preemptively shoot but anyone at any moment could just walk up to you with a suicide belt and and you're done it's a very different thing that's a target i'm gonna eliminate it done so that's number one strike and maneuver versus hold and build and again this is really what the israelis have perfected i say this all the time and i want you to remember this analogy here Israel is right on the border of all of this. The Israeli Golan borders the Syrian Golan, where you have you got Assad's folks, you got Hezbollah, you got Nusra. Um, ISIS gets pretty close at any given moment, you know, especially when they had strength. Um, all sorts of bad guys are within 20 miles of their border, if not within a mile or two of their border. Right? Not. 7,000, 10,000 miles from their border, like us, a few miles away. When was the last time Israel lost a soldier in a foreign land? 
Well, the way to answer that question is, when is the last time Israel accepted responsibility for building infrastructure in foreign lands? Never. They don't. What does Israel... Now, does Israel just ignore everything? No, it's a false choice. They do strike and maneuver. They're always, every couple of weeks, you see them doing it. If it's Assad's forces that they feel are too close to them, I'll zap that. If it's the IRGC, if it's Hezbollah, if it's a Sunni group, they'll go after that. But what they do is they draw a perimeter. This is our zone of interest. I don't care what happens in your zone. I'm not going to try to own your tribes and your land and build it. I'm not going to try to tip the balance of power in your civil war, but it, but I'm going to define Israel first. Right? That's how the Israelis think. So we should do the same thing. America first. What are our interests? And we zap it. So that that's the first way to understand it. And, and I think the president did a terrific job where he actually explained. He said, look, I even after celebrating killing the killing of Baghdadi, the head of ISIS, he, he made sure to reiterate, but in the long run, ISIS is more their problem. It's Russia's problem. And he actually, for the first time, made my point. I've been saying this for years. Russia is, was happy we were there. They loved it because we held down the Sunni insurgency so they can do their stuff. Otherwise, it would be their problem. Now, you're going to ask the inevitable question, okay, well, then why kill Baghdadi? He's their problem, too. So obviously, we're one of the only ones who are, if not the only one who has such a capability to pull off such an operation. But here is where we get into. So first of all, I think we all agree there is a degree of morality and justice. Even before we get to strategic vision, going back to the first part of the show, if you do have a mass murderer like that and it doesn't cost us much to get him, um, it's worth it, it is worth the value of people seeing justice. And, and, and I, I've always said, I do agree in that facet of the divine providence of God blessing America with the resources we have that you could have a time where it theoretically wouldn't affect us. But if someone is killing good people and it won't get us sucked in and it's just a one-off and by simply bombing them off, you could stop it. The typical analogy of um, bombing the train tracks to the concentration camps, which FDR didn't want to do, we should do it. But it's deeper than that. ISIS never affected us in terms of the ground they held in Syria. What ISIS was a strategic threat with was when it came to their recruitment ability to trigger people in our countries. You've heard me say many times this is an immigration problem, not a Middle East problem. If you don't let them in your country, you don't have the problem. And that's true. I agree with it. But where ISIS did hurt us is in the way, and, and we saw it with the increased fervence, is those that are already here. If you put yourself in Trump's shoes, look, we've he he comes two, three million Muslims later. You know, after two, three million Muslims were admitted into this country so now we got a problem so what they were able to do more than anyone is it was the glamour it was the coolness factor it was the success that they had, were creating a caliphate and they were being successful and it triggered all these people into thinking now's our time for the apocalypse where we could come out and strike and it wasn't command and control it's not like al-qaeda al-qaeda was more of a strategic threat Again, ultimately, in my view, immigration, because they can't attack us if they can't come in, but in terms of very sophisticated, coordinated attacks, ISIS really doesn't have that capability, and they didn't have that capability. It was the coolness factor. But, but that was worth something. If we didn't have any of them in the country, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't affect us. They could put out their funky videos all they want, march around in Raqqa all they want, doesn't affect us. But once, you know, unfortunately, we have a bunch of jihadists we led in this country or people with Sharia proclivities, well, then it's a problem. Then it is a problem. This is where the brilliance was so important of Trump expressing Baghdadi's demise in the way he did. 
expressing it in terms of he died in such a lowly manner. Because what they like to do is make, you know, is, is to embellish the um, heroism of martyrdom, right? That, that's what, what they do. And that's why he wanted everyone to know that guy was a coward and he wasn't fighting back. He killed his own kids and he was whimpering and he couldn't even get off a shot. And he ran in a one one way cave. And we crushed him like a like like a bug. That's the beauty of what he did. It's not just the morality that, yes, we should talk down these people. We should dehumanize those who dehumanize as much as possible. Yes, we should celebrate it from the moral side. But there was a very specific strategic value to what he did. I mean, I think this is the one area where Trumpism is exactly what the doctor ordered. His way of speaking. Sometimes it's like, dude, you're off message. Stop it. Sound more presidential. This case is exactly what was needed. Um, and, and again, along with the rest of himself explaining, like, look, the strike and maneuver, we're going to do this. We're not running away. People accuse me of being weak, and now I caught Baghdadi where no one could. We're not running away. We're reloading. This is a different strategy. It's a better strategy. Now, again, he needs people in the administration to actually be consistent and consistently apply this. I mean, they should apply the same lessons in Afghanistan as well. That if there are terrorists that are have a strategic threat to us, zap them. Or in this case, there was a there was a coolness factor, which which sounds very intangible, but it really is a big deal. But again, the fact that ISIS exists, I mean, and, and there's one thing to think like, oh, they were getting too powerful, like they were going to run over everyone and we had to stop them. I'm not sure if that's true, because I think Iran would have had to step in. They only didn't because they knew we, we couldn't allow Baghdad to fall, which we should have because Baghdad's a cesspool. It's a proxy of Iran, but our military will never admit that. Um, but anyway. I, I do think that what, what people make a mistake in, in the sense is that now, while there was utility to, to getting Baghdadi in terms of deflating the glamour of ISIS, strategically, there's no value to taking the last vestiges and completely eliminating them on behalf of Russia, Assad, and Iran. Let them remain a little bit of a thorn in their side. Remember, this is what people... This is the point people miss. There was a big, not theological disagreement, but a strategic disagreement between the traditional disciples of, of Al-Qaeda, of bin Laden and Zariri, and the you know, spinoff of ISIS, which spun off of, of Al-Qaeda. ISIS's whole thing was, you guys talk about a caliphate, your big talk, we're the ones who are going to create it. And they did for a period of time. We held territory across multiple nations. Okay, we did it. And it sounded like, yeah, I mean, these guys are a much bigger deal than Al-Qaeda, right? No. Bin Laden strategically was always right. Bin Laden was viscerally against the establishment of the caliphate. Now, that was the end goal. But the goal was you had to destroy your enemies first and then establish the caliphate because he always understood the mistakes that ISIS never looked, you know, looked into the future, which was the minute you have a conventional country, America could come and destroy it, which we always knew wasn't a threat. We could destroy it in a minute. We could destroy a caliphate in a minute. We could destroy infrastructure in a minute. What we can't do is hold together their tribes long term and try to rebuild it in our image or any image. You got to just strike and maneuver. But 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 to, to bomb their stuff, we could destroy anything. We have the weaponry to, to destroy it instantly. Now, we don't because we're worried about civilian casualties, but he always understood that. So that's why what he did was say, no, let's operate without a name and a face, sprung, you know, flung out throughout 50 different countries get our Muslim Brotherhood operatives in the West, work with them and attack the West in these, you know, coordinated terror attacks. And then like that was the whole problem of 9-11. They killed as many people, more people than in Pearl Harbor. 
but it was nothing but 19 people we sh we let into the country because of our own self-immolating policies with box cutters. And we like had nothing to shoot at. So we chose Afghanistan and we, we made a mistake of trying to hold that. We were the ones trying to hold territory. And that, that was the very frustrating thing. And that, that's what was really brilliant about um, bin Laden's leadership. Uh, he understood that. ISIS is the funkiest thing around because they're, they've decided to, to build a model of holding territory in a, in a specific place. Well, we could always kill them off. But, you know, at this point, we have no value in staying there to fight ISIS because we're doing nothing but being wards of Iran. There's just no value to that. Again, it doesn't mean being weak. I, I, I don't know why I'm the only one suggesting this, but Democrats are pushing sanctions on, on Erdogan, on Turkey this week. We should take yes for an answer. If I were Republicans, I'd say, thank you, Democrats. Now let me add an amendment. Well, if Turkey is terrible, if Erdogan is terrible, how is Erdogan allowed to fund your Muslim organizations, Karen, Ikna, and Isna? How are they allowed to fund the largest mosques in America? How are they allowed to fund their poison on our soil if what they're doing halfway around the world is a danger to us in your view? That's the way you bust them out. We could remain strong on terror without the failed George W. Bush Obama model of the last number of years of hold and build on behalf of Islam. Strike and maneuver on behalf of America. Immigration, border, Go after the Muslim Brotherhood. Terror finance. Bust up the terror finance and the drugs and the EBT fraud and a whole bunch of stuff. It's being funded on our shores. That's not a military issue. Make the right alliances. Use the right soft power. And when appropriate for hard power, use it. Use it decisively, but also use it with the tactics of strike and maneuver, mainly harnessing um, short-term commando operations, not using commandos as a conventional force for 15 years flung out throughout Afghanistan like we're doing now. We're not using them like commandos. That's a whole nother discussion we've already had. And, um, and then we're well off. Then we, we, then we are fine. We need to properly explain what it is that threatens us with terrorism because it's not really terrorism. Terrorism is a tactic. It's jihad, which includes civilization jihad. That's the issue. I didn't mean for it to work out this way, but this is a perfect segue into the closer of our show. So we're all happy. We defeated ISIS. We defeated Baghdadi. And we should be happy. But I fear that if we don't change course, people like Baghdadi and Bin Laden and the Muslim Brotherhood will get the last laugh on us. You see, they are defeating us where it matters most. They are defeating us in the civilization, cultural jihad on our own soil. There's a story I didn't get to, and I'm surprised I missed it. It was only because of a Fox article I saw on Friday. Some of you have seen my tweet Several congressmen have retweeted it and made comments on it. They didn't know about it. I didn't know about it. But this happened the week before, I think October 15th. The Supreme Court turned down an appeal from a Christian girl. Now she's 20. This happened a few years ago in Maryland, my home state. After she was forced to do an assignment on Muslim you know, Islam around the world or Muslims around the world, where she had to write out the following statement. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah as a portion. It's a portion of the Islamic declaration of faith known as the um, Shahada. This is this is one of the most sacred. This is like this is what Muslims say when they convert to Islam. And she had to write it as part of a fill-in-the-blank assignment. And they took it to the Fourth Circuit, the district of the Fourth Circuit, and they were like, no, there's no problem here. What are you talking about? There's no problem. This is not a violation of the Establishment Clause. This is not a violation of your rights. And we took it, and they took it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court denied the appeal. So the lower court ruling stands.
So before I get to the legal arguments, which unfortunately I spent too much time on the first part of the show, we don't have much time left. But just forget about the technicalities, even if this wouldn't technically violate the First Amendment, which admittedly, I and many other conservatives have a very narrow reading of what government can and cannot do on religion. But it doesn't mean you should do it. Politically, this is a big problem. What was very evident from just reading about this case is that this wasn't like an even handed. Okay, you do like a report on Judaism, Christianity, Islam. No, this was clearly throughout. This was only Islam and it was making Islam look better than Christians. There was a clear agenda to this. So I just want to say just as a segue from the first part of the show, they have already won. They have already put Islam as as a preferred religion in our public schools. So I hate to put a damper on you, but we could kill their terrorists. But if we bring in their culture, they won. They won. But I do want to say this case demonstrates beautifully my thesis why the courts are a one-way street, why the courts are a dead end for conservatives, why we always get one outcome where conservatives are very narrow on their things, but the liberal justices are broad. For all of our lives, what have we heard? This has been going on in the lower courts and the Supreme Court for 50 years. Separation of church and state, even though it's not in the Constitution, but you would think it is, and they treat it like it is, that you cannot have an inference, an utterance, an insinuation of religion in any government school, in any government building, in any government official, even if no non-religious or other religious person is forced to do anything. But just the display of an inanimate object, a, a, you know, a cross or something like that, Ten Commandments, can't be done. Roy Moore got booted from his job in Alabama because he didn't take down the Ten Commandments. It didn't harm anyone. It didn't do anything deeply rooted in our history and tradition. We were told that any display or endorsement or demonstrating that you agree with it is, a, is like establishing a national religion and it violates the First Amendment and people could take that to court and the courts could strike down and say you have to uproot this symbol. You have to stop public prayer. And this is going on to this day. To this day. You might think, well, we won the Bladensburg cross case. But as you remember, only Gorsuch and Thomas were solid on it. Alito, who for whatever reasons particularly seems to be weak on this issue, Alito and um, Kavanaugh and Roberts all seem to indicate that it's only because the cross was around 100 years. But if you were to build a new cross, it could possibly be a problem, even though it's an inanimate object. It's not forcing anyone. It's not uttering words of prayer. And certainly public prayer would be a problem. Let me tell you, to this day, there's another case. The Fourth Circuit, the very circuit that ruled that a public school in Maryland, Charles County, Maryland, La Plata High School, could force a kid to do a required coursework assignment that has to declare the Muslim, the most sacred Muslim conversion statement, which is writing the words, there is no God but Allah. So that, that is the most violating of a religion. It violates her, her Christian religion. I'm Jewish. It would violate my religion as well to write that. Um, Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. No, the, the court said, no, it's not our role. It's unbelievable. The Fourth Circuit said, this was in February. It's not our role to get involved and dictate education. This is a school. We can't get into the classroom. These very same courts for years have done this. But the very same Fourth Circuit that year before said that Rowan County, North Carolina, cannot open their council meeting with one council member just giving a Christian prayer. Like what's done in the House of Representatives, the Senate, at a federal level every day. You can't do it in um, at a county or state level. Outrageous, right? It went to the Supreme Court. They denied the appeal. 
Thomas and Gorsuch dissented, but Alito and Roberts didn't. Kavanaugh wasn't yet on the court, but I have no doubt he would have agreed with them. So they believe, remember, let's say I'm a Jew, I'm a Muslim, I'm an atheist, I'm a non-Christian, and they mention a prayer about Jesus. I'm not exactly sure how the prayer was structured. I don't remember the case. But let's just say they directly mentioned Jesus and, and all that stuff and just directly, it was, it was totally Christian, let's say, exclusively Christian prayer. No human being was coerced to do anything. You didn't have to remain there. You didn't have to utter anything. You didn't have to write anything. You didn't have to do anything. Fourth Circuit said you can't do that. Those very same courts are now saying you could coerce someone into Islam. Folks, As we've noted many times, none of this stuff violates the Establishment Clause. The Establishment Clause means one thing. If they declare we have an official religion of Presbyterian, the state religion is Presbyterian, the state religion is Catholic, the state religion is this. Anything short of that is not establishing religion. Now, there's a second part of the clause, which is free exercise, which ties into it. Here's the one way you violate it. And that's the only time the courts don't actually enforce the Constitution and step in. James Madison, on August 20th, 1789, he was literally introducing the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment. He explained the purpose of the Establishment Clause as follows. Quote, Congress should not establish a religion and enforce the legal observation of it by law, nor compel men to worship God in any manner contrary to their conscience. The one time you violate the Establishment Clause is if you make a rule that compels someone to violate their conscience. You must express the Muslim prayer or you must bake a cake for a a gay wedding. Yet that's when the courts come in and say you must do it. The hypocrisy is unbelievable on the Fourth Circuit level. At the Supreme Court level, at least for Roberts, Alito and Kavanaugh. So the thing with Gorsuch and Thomas, so there was no recorded dissent on the denial of cert. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean they didn't dissent. It's not always recorded. There's no rhyme or reason, or I don't know of one, as to why sometimes they articulate a dissent, sometimes they don't. But it doesn't mean there wasn't one, at least my understanding of the way the courts work. What we could infer is that at the very least, there were no more than three willing to take up the case because it takes four to take up a case, which I'm sure Roberts um, and Kavanaugh, probably Alito, based on what I've seen so far from him, unfortunately, probably was with that. For those people, it's, it's indefensible. You see what I'm saying? Because even if you want to say that, um, you know, it wasn't quite like professing it as if you're standing up in a play or like a school play and saying, I accept, you know, Muhammad is the prophet. It's filling out a fill in the blank of what Muslims do. But you are writing out that statement. And if they find that offensive, that that is that is as, as offensive to someone's conscience as could be. Moreover, so, so if these justices are going to say. That they are fine. Or no, they're they're not okay with a state voluntarily praying to, you know, giving a Christian prayer that doesn't coerce anyone to coerce someone to writing this is indefensible. It demonstrates this is not about law or the Constitution. This is about identity politics. Islam is good. Other religions are not. That is what they're subscribing to. For Thomas and Gorsuch, it could be they did dissent. I don't know. But I'm just saying, to Thomas's credit, I'm just saying, Thomas does have a very narrow reading, which nine out of 10 times benefits us because they're usually going after Christians, where in other words, you might be able to say in this case, it's politically repugnant, but at the end of the day, schools have wide latitude to educate and to do what they want and you got to fight that out at a local political level legally he believes the courts should never step in in these cases so as long as they didn't sit like make her stand up there and literally recite it as if she's accepting it maybe it's not enough to step in 
I don't know. It's, it, I'm speculating because it could be he did dissent. But I know certainly for the other people, this is the biggest hypocrisy I've ever seen. But I will say, I personally do believe, so there were two arguments here that the plaintiffs made um, on behalf of Kylie Wood. Um, number one, that in general, like the, the, the whole coursework said positive things and favored Islam. That I, I agree. I don't think, in my view, it violates establishment clause. The precedents that are on the books, what they've done to Christianity, yes. And, and it should be applied there too. But personally, my reading is very narrow, and I think it's the right reading. I think you have to deal with that at a political level. But the second argument is that it violated her free speech to, <coughs> to compel her to actually go ahead and write this statement. I do believe that is a problem, um, and she shouldn't have to do that legally, not just politically. Um, but but that's, that's where we are. That's where we are here. It's very, very sad. Very sad. And I just want to note one other argument. We all agree, based on Supreme Court precedent and prudence dictates this, that there is a difference between a student in a public school and a private adult or student, for that matter, in on the streets or your home. Obviously, um, schools, even a public school, a government school, could regulate free speech, so to speak, much more in that setting, right? In other words, you can go down the street being, you know, cursing saying curse words, but, you know, schools are allowed to say you can't be in a classroom and be lewd and, you know, have lewd uh, paraphernalia and, and statements. That is true. They, they could place a, po a, a negative on your positive actions, but to compel, place a positive on your negative, <coughs> to compel speech, and not just any speech, but the most foundational Muslim acceptance of religion for a Christian to do I'm sorry, you, you can't throw at me all of the school exception. No, that is long in our precedence because they've they've said you can't even teachers can't even display or or you know talk about Christian dogma, which again doesn't coerce an atheist or a Muslim student to do anything. This is coercion. Again, voluntary Christian expression out. Mandatory Muslim coercion in. That is the America we are living in. And my friends, let me tell you, until we end that, we have not defeated Baghdadi, Bin Laden, and all these people. The fight is not really in Syria. The fight is here at home. Thank you for listening. God bless you all. Send me your comments, questions, feedback at dhorowitz at blazemedia.com. Subscribe to our YouTube page. I know a lot of you like listening on iTunes, but often we have good visual graphics here. You want to Subscribe to our YouTube page and like our videos. Send me feedback at, in, in YouTube as well. Till tomorrow, same time, same place. The only independent conservative talk show in America will be back with more Truth Bombs. <laughs>